Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Good afternoon. Welcome to another edition of the Manchester is Red podcast from the Manchester Evening News. Uh, another edition full of um, depressing analysis from another disappointing result for United this season. Feels like there's been a, a whole series of them, unfortunately, this season. Uh, I'm Tyra Marshall, hosting today, joined by Samuel Luckhurst. Samuel, are you over Tuesday night yet? Uh, professionally, the, the 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 experience of covering United is just draining. I think twenty four seven these these days. Mm. It, you can never be over it. We won't be over it, and even even at the start of next season, I suppose the the inquest has got about one hundred and forty odd days to to run, and there's there's going to be a hell of a lot to to write about. So yeah, it's it's as I think you use the word draining as we we're walking yeah. out the um, through the Munich tunnel after the game on on Tuesday night. It, it, it perfectly summarizes covering the club. Yeah, it does. You know, I mean, I'm not a, a United fan. My loyalties lie in League One, but it does. Covering them this season has been an incredibly dispiriting experience. And I would say, I think draining is the right word and casting our eyes back to, to Tuesday night. Um, just another hugely disappointing night, wasn't it? I mean, I think I turned to you about five minutes into the second half and said, they're not scoring here. And it did feel, you know, it, it felt from early in the second half like it wasn't going to happen despite what had been a bright start in the first half. And, by the end, it was just one of those one of those disappointing nights in the season. Full of them, it was. They they are not they're not um, welcome in the Champions League. Really, they're they're not worthy of the Champions League. And and the strange thing is that they might still qualify for it next season, given that Arsenal had their obligatory loss against uh, one one of the elite uh, the other night, and their their other two games in hand are against Chelsea away and Tottenham away. But United really do just look like a team that have been to the Champions League quarterfinals twice in the last 10 years. And Atletico have been to two finals in that period. Uh, they were streetwise. They were canny. They they managed the occasion very, very well. They've got players who are experienced in those situations. United, although there was an awful lot of experience in that team, for large swathes of that that game, they just looked like absolute novices. The the naivety was was staggering, and I, I take you know the, the whole thing about the referee. The referee was was dreadful. He was out of his depth. Um, I know it can be. Uh, you know, sometimes you look at the internet, you look at the nationality of the referee, and you think, how the hell has he got these this game? But I think the the referee for the uh, two thousand eight Champions League final, it was Lubos Mikels. He might have been Slovakian or, or Slovenian, and, and he was actually, you know, quite a, a well-respected referee. The referee the other night was from Slovenia, and and from the first the first major decision he made, really, by giving that non-foul against Alanga on Jan Oblak, who coincidentally is from Slovenia, just set the tone for an absolutely horrendous performance. But my 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 feeling on it was that you, you, I, was, I was probably more affronted by how naive United were uh, in failing to to manage the referee. Like Atletico brought all the tricks out. Uh, United fell into every trap that was laid down. And it, it, it was just kind of apt, really, that here's, here's a team that 
have won what is it two two Champions League knockout games of the last fourteen, and they were against Olympiacos and, and PSG, and and they act, they absolutely resemble that kind of side. Their their pedigree in the competition is is non-existent these days, and you know uh, Rangnick the night the, the day before was trying to make a big play about the crowd. Um, you know, getting behind the team and helping United, and, and the atmosphere at the start was was electric. And the first thirty minutes, I thought United were pretty good. They should have gone one 0 up. That chance that Ilanga had, but in the second half, you we were. I think I said to you five or ten minutes in, and I know this is an unpopular thing to say because football fans, if there's one thing they hate, it's journalists kind of like lecturing them on on how they should support a team. But the impatience of the crowd was was really not helping united were trying to have a slow build up work the angles there had to be an element of patience sir alex ferguson used to say that you've got to be patient and and, and bide your time for a chance from time to time and during that build-up play where united fans were getting impatient sancho volleyed just over old black's crossbar and that was probably one of two pretty good chances they had in the second half but even the crowd seemed naive to the occasion and and played into Atletico Madrid's hands and of course uh, you know the, the missiles raining down Simeone at the end which was you know completely uncalled for and you know I'm, I'm sure United will take the appropriate action against those supporters uh, again like what what what's what, what are you getting out of that I, I know Simeone is not a popular guy with a lot of opposition fans but he he just absolutely did United the other night. Just the experience, the tactics, um, the, the, the know-how of the Atletico players. It, it really wasn't a surprise that Atletico went through. Uh, they, they just they knew how to play United. They knew how to play the occasion. And I, I mean, I I did fancy United going into the game. I thought United would at least score. But as Rangnick pointed out afterwards, if if you go one 0 behind Atletico Madrid, it is very very difficult to get anything out of the game. And United just, as you said, apart from the odd header or, uh, you know, the, the, the Sancho volley that uh, he had uh, quite early in the second half, they just looked completely devoid of ideas. Yeah. It, like I said, it, it felt like second half, like they fell into every single trap. Atletico laid, really. And they are probably the worst team in Europe to go 1-0 down to. Ranjit criticised the referee after the game. I mean, he clearly had a very strange game. Some of those second-half yeah. decisions were, were bizarre. He bought into a lot of Atletico's play-acting and attempts to stop the game. But, you know, you need to keep a cool head at, at those moments. And it felt like United were getting too, almost too emotionally involved in it rather than trying to stay calm and, and work their way back into the game, which is why it had this feel throughout most of the half that they simply weren't going to score. And, the, you know, their best chances came in that opening half-hour. But in reality, it was the only... That was the only spell in the entire tie where they looked Atletico Madrid's equals. And it's an Atletico Madrid side that have made a mess of their title defence that aren't having a great season in Spain. So, you know, it, it, it does feel particularly damning for United. I guess it just sort of, you know, it, it exposed similar problems, didn't it? You look at the players brought on to try and rescue the game. I mean, I think there's an argument Ranić made too many subs too quickly and yeah. it, it almost became a bit too panicky, really. But you're throwing on... Cavani and Mata. I mean, the, the introduction of Mata was bizarre when he's played so little football this season. Pogba going on as well. You've got three players there who are out of contract in the summer trying to save the game. Lingard could have come on. He's out of contract in the summer. It just felt in that second half like a lot of the same problems were exposed and it was a team lacking a plan, wasn't it? It was. The, the Mata substitution was, uh, I mean, somewhat coincidentally, as, as bizarre as Nick Powell coming on for, for Mata at, at Wolfsburg in the group stage, I think, in, in 2015 when, when it was Louis van Gaal's second season and United went out of the Champions League that night, of course. 
it, it's just not a great look when you're turning to, I mean, Pogba's 29, he's 30 next year, but Matic is in his 30s, Cavani's in his 30s, Matter's well into his 30s as well. And the majority of those players are are leaving in in, in the summer. But there's been an element of that about Rangnick at times, I think, um, in some of the games, in that he's he's almost been dilatory with his uh, with with his game management or, or dormant even. Certainly with with the Lindelof um, the delay to Lindelof substitution against Tottenham that that contributed to the second equaliser. But I'm a little bit like Solskjaer, he has this tendency just to wait until the hour mark to make the first first substitution and you know, that that became a, a bone of contention with Solskjaer's management and it's it's just too diplomatic you, you look at Klopp the other night Diogo Jota scores to make it 1-0 he was coming off anyway he still goes off Firmino comes on Firmino gets the goal that pretty much you know wraps up the win and, and Liverpool go from being in a very difficult position where they weren't playing well for the best part of 55 minutes to actually winning quite easily at Arsenal it, in, in the end, in what was certainly one of their more testing games in the run-in. But that's what separates the the truly brilliant teams in, in the Premier League and, and on the continent from from the also-rans. And, and United have, have been an also-ran side for a long, long time now. And I suppose from, from a journalistic perspective, although fourth is attainable, um, I think they've, you know, the, the focus is already very much on on next season, and and that's going to have to intensify in the coming weeks. Even though, as I said, United could somehow end the season in fourth, which would not be particularly a posit, I think, for the way this season has panned out. And uh, I, I still suspect that, yeah, I mean, I mean, Arsenal are in the driving seat there, and you'd probably still have Arsenal down as favourites to finish fourth. Yeah, and. You know, I, guess, I guess the one positive or the big positive over the two ties was was Anthony Alanga played fairly well from the start on on Tuesday night. Obviously got the goal in Madrid. I mean, it, it wasn't a foul on him for the goal. I think that much was pretty clear. And I think mm-hmm. Ranić's. I think a lot of the complaints about that are almost a way of protecting him because it was his man that, that scored really, and he should have been back there helping Dallo out. But he's clearly mm-hmm. a positive. But you mentioned top four chances there. I mean, it, it feels like the difficulty with that is that a lot of these players. It just seems that they need the season to end. You know, Maguire was sarcastically cheered off again. I think that's the third time that's happened at Old Trafford this season to a player. He's clearly having a terrible season, looks devoid of confidence. Rashford came on and offered very little. There was there was the one chance late on where he had that chance to cross first time. And I think I said to you at the time, the fact he took a touch showed he just did not trust himself to put that ball in first time and yeah. he just slowed it down. And, you know, we've seen what happened to that video after the game. It, it feels like there's a lot of players here who have just completely lost their belief this season and need it to end yet somehow they need to try and find some form because getting in the Champions League is not far off being imperative you would say there's there's three winnable games coming up now before that double header against Liverpool and Arsenal and somehow they just need to try and find some form don't they in this this two and a half week break just try and try and find some belief and some confidence from somewhere Indeed. Who was the third player who was sarcastically cheered off? So it's happened to Maguire and Rashford this season. Who was the I other I think it happened one? to Fred. Was it Fred against City? Oh, it did. It did, yeah. Uh, when yeah. Van der Beek came when on. When Van der Beek came yeah. on, yeah. And Fred has, has certainly, in the recent months, been one of the more consistent players. But mm. you know, there, there are times where it's fashionable to um, to deride him. But that's, again, it's it's in keeping with how this, this season has gone, that there have been... 
three three players who've been subjected to that treatment. It, it took the booing of, of of a club legend as as the manager to get him sacked because the club weren't doing anything about that, even though he should have been dismissed four weeks earlier. Um, you know, United fans were were very very reluctant to turn against Solskjaer, but the moment they did, that was the the point that the board decided that well, we, we we're going to have to finally act here. We're going to actually have to make a decision. But as far as the players are concerned, I mean, they've, they've got to be motivated by the prospects of playing in the Champions League next season rather than having these soulless Thursday nights in the Europa League or even the Europa Conference League. It's, it's not beyond the realms of possibility. United would be pushed that far down the league in the run-in. And United have have become a yo-yo club. Uh, they, they're in and out of the Champions League or the Europa League. They've had far too many Europa League campaigns in in recent years and and also just just the scheduling of it that there is a definite disadvantage to having uh, it would be at least six six Sunday matches um next season before Christmas because other teams are obviously playing ahead of you uh it's it's just it's as much a mental thing as well players are accustomed to playing most of their games on Saturdays and they they, they want to play midweek matches on a Tuesday or a Wednesday night, just the, the thought of having a Thursday night game, it kind of throws them a little bit. And there haven't been many teams that have capitalised in recent years on having Thursday night football. You know, it's I don't think it's even possible, unfortunately, for United to fall so far down the league that they're not in Europe whatsoever next season. They, they are going to be in a European competition, whether it's one they want to be in or one that they don't want to be in. But you have seen in recent years teams who haven't had any European competition whatsoever uh, capitalise on it. Liverpool should have won the league in 2014. Chelsea did win the league in 2016. The way it's going with Arsenal at the moment, they probably should finish fourth, um, even though it's probably tighter than a lot of people think. I still think that uh, separate from those games in hand Arsenal have, there are some some tricky matches that they've got in their run-in. But United aren't going to have that luxury next season. The, the likelihood as it stands at the moment is that they will have Thursday night matches to contend with next season. That will have a major impact on who they can target in the summer. We've been over this before. Their, their pull in the summer transfer market in 2019 was the lowest it had been in decades, mainly because they didn't have Champions League football to offer. And they also didn't have a marquee manager who would be able to entice uh, players players of a certain repute. So that's another that's another problem for them to factor into it. And I, I remember writing in 2017 that, that Mourinho had compiled two separate transfer lists um, before the season had ended. One for if the club qualified for the Champions League, one for if they ended up in the Europa League again. So that forward planning should already be taking place. Um, I mean, looking at our colleague Don Booth's uh, perspective 11 for next season, it looks like United are in... This some made-up competition that's not even for the Europa Conference League. Uh, I think he, the, the team he picked is is, is destined for the Championship. Uh, I, I don't. I, I seriously hope he's not. He's not making a pitch uh, to be Tom Murder's uh, assistant as as football director. Um, I, I can't somehow. I can't see that team transpiring at United next season. Um, but you know, there, there's there has to be a hell of a lot of upheaval in the summer. Uh, there are going to be a lot of players that leave just because they're out of contract. There are a number of other players who need to be sold um, because they've outstayed their welcomes or they're not good enough. And you know, there, there are some players whose whose futures will will hinge on the manager. But I think 
John Murta and, and Darren Fletcher really, if if you know if they're doing their jobs properly, they should have they should have made their their decisions on on certain players who who are under contract. It's this 18-day break without a game now, um, as a result of not playing this weekend, obviously, and then the international break. Players have, have gone off on a break. Um, I mean, it's going to be a slog for us, but I guess two people who who should be busy in this period uh, are Richard Arnold and John Murter. It feels like a, an obvious time to make headway with, with regards to new manager appointments. You mentioned there the, the issue over transfers this year. It feels like it's going to be a busy summer and they need to know who that manager is as soon as the season finishes, really, don't they, to, to get the ball rolling with transfers and with players moving. Um, I mean, how do you see the next two weeks panning out in, in terms of managerial appointments? I guess you may not get an appointment, but it, it feels like a time where they have to make significant headway and come that Leicester game on April the 2nd, have, have a pretty good idea of, of who the man in the dugout is going to be next year. Well, I hope for, for all our sake, that, well, my sake, selfishly, that if anything does develop, it's in the second week. So I'm I'm, I'm off the first week of, of the March internationals. Um, but it wouldn't surprise me if if something if if there is some sort of development. It, it almost feels like the this March international period is is a transfer window for United as as far as managers are concerned. There's there's absolutely no reason why they can't execute a deal with Eric Ten Hag, if if not Eric Ten Hag, with Mauricio Pochettino. Neither of them have got Champions League um, commitments uh, for the rest of the season. Certainly Pochettino's case, I think everybody knows that he's not going to be at PSG next season. Everybody knows PSG are going to win the league this season. Whoever wants him next season, whether it's United or another club, because obviously Real Madrid always mentioned with Pochettino, Tottenham still mentioned with Pochettino, it wouldn't be beyond the realms of possibility that he ends up back there next season, particularly if, you know, with, with the way it's gone with Conte, you, you're you never quite certain with with Conte anyway. I mean, his, his contract length isn't particularly long. Uh, he seems like he's already you know, got, got himself in over his head, uh, going to Tottenham, working with Daniel Levy. Uh, with as far as Ten Hag is concerned, United have a very good relationship with Ajax. He's out of contract next year, and the compensation fee wouldn't be, uh, you know, wouldn't be that steep. I wouldn't have thought. And although Ajax are in a title race with PS, PSV Eindhoven, where they're only two points ahead of them at the moment, I don't think there's anything stopping United from having an informal agreement in place or trying to execute an informal uh, agreement that that doesn't have to be announced in in March, but you know they've they've got Ten Hag contractually tied to them from from July the first. I think that's that's perfectly possible. You, you go back to when Ferguson decided that he, he was retiring. He, he summoned David Moyes to his house. I think in in early April or mid April, uh, which was a good three or four weeks before before the end of that season. So if if Ferguson can do it, and and that was very ad hoc, and that was when United didn't have a structure in place whatsoever, and he was the sole kingmaker with with that decision. Now they have got a structure in place. They have got a football director. They have got a technical director. They've got a new chief executive who's under pressure to uh, make his presence felt in a in a proactive and and, and crowd pleasing way uh, as as quickly as possible. Particularly given how this season has gone, and particularly what Richard Arnold has, has said in the past and what he's he's synonymous with among among the fan base and the match goers so as i said it's it is they've, they've got to treat it as like a transfer window for for managers um and 
still, I, I would be amazed if the United Mansion next season is someone other than Ten Hag or Pochettino. It's, it feels like it's one or the other, one or the other, really. Yeah, I mean, it's it felt ironic on Tuesday night that both Pochettino and Tenag were also knocked out of the Champions League yeah. in the last 16 stage with winnable ties. But in a way, it probably helps United in terms of accelerating that appointment that they don't have that European distraction now, especially with Pochettino. I mean, their season is basically over, given how far yeah. ahead they are in, in Ligue 1. I guess the other name that's kind of emerged over the last week is, is Thomas Tuchel. It would be naive United not to at least look into the situation there in the upheaval at Chelsea. He He's saying all the right things in terms of staying at Chelsea. It seems a takeover there could accelerate relatively quickly. I mean, it feels like that is that Tuchel to United is, is still very, very unlikely as we stand at the moment. Yeah, I I personally think that Tuchel would be brilliant for United. I've, I've thought yeah. that ever since he... He was doing the media rounds before PSG's game at Old Trafford a few years ago. I just like the cut, the cut of his jib, the way he coached on the sidelines. He's done a really good job at Chelsea. Um, there have been some particular, really peculiar naysayers out there, you know, suggesting that he's you know, that, that, that him and Pochettino, there's not much between them, and and Tuchel didn't do that good a job at PSG. I mean, he did get PSG to a Champions League final, which seems to be beyond every other coach that that goes in there. And as as far as I'm concerned, I think Tuchel blows uh, Pochettino and Ten Hag out of the water, but I don't think he's attainable. The the length on his contract is prohibitive uh, alone. He's, he's he's tied to Chelsea until 2024. He got a two-year extension after they won the Champions League last year. And you just know that the priority of the next owners who come in, and it does look like a takeover, will be finalised sooner rather than later. Their priority will be to ensure that Tuchel stays. Tuchel has absolute authority at Chelsea. He's probably the most authoritative coach at Chelsea since Jose Mourinho during his first spell. Uh, you go back to January and how the club backed him over what Romelu Lukaku said. Normally with Chelsea, it's you know, Chelsea used to be synonymous with, with player power. Um, you know, the, the days of Czech, Ashley Cole, John Terry, Frank Lampard and, and, and Didier Drogba, that coterie. But those days, those days are long since gone and there aren't there's not an obvious group of players at Chelsea that have that are able to wield power similar to to that group that, that first came in really, or, or certainly first uh, gelled when when Mourinho was there in, in his first spell. So Tuchel has absolute authority at Chelsea. They they are in limbo at the moment. It's been a very unstable time for them. Um, you know, there, there's been a lot of Schadenfreude at their expense from from opposition supporters. The club haven't helped themselves either with some pretty classless things that they've come out with and there's an image that some supporters have of Chelsea and Chelsea have absolutely played up to that image in in recent weeks their fans include as well with their really tawdry um, you know chance of of Roman Abramovich when when people are trying to show as much solidarity with the people in Ukraine as possible but my gut instinct has all along has been that although it would make hell of a lot of sense for United to try and take Tuchel from Chelsea, that he will he will stay at Chelsea because he's, he's probably their biggest asset. And beyond Klopp and Guardiola, who who are the two best coaches in the world and have been the two best coaches in the world for for four or five years, I'd say Tuchel is is probably number three, and that's that's borne out by how the Premier League table looks. Yeah, like you say, I think he'd be. Uh, uh, as close to a surefire success as United can get, but it's pretty clear it's going to be a, a very difficult one to pull off. Um, a couple of international squads announced over the last, last few days as well, and for any 
United players hoping to restore their confidence internationally. It's going to be tricky because a lot of them have been dropped. Um, no Marcus Rashford in the England squad, which probably isn't surprising. James Sancho not being in felt surprising. Southgate explaining that he's a bit behind the players that are, that are ahead of him at the moment. And those who have been playing, even though Emile Smith-Rowe has spent most of recent weeks on the bench for for Arsenal. And then no David De Gea in the Spain squad today, which was very strange when you've got a Brighton goalkeeper and a Brentford goalkeeper in front of him. I mean, what, what did you make of those two decisions? I guess we don't really know why De Gea has been left out yet, but it feels like he's never really been a great fit for Enrique and, and building from the back. And we know that's an issue in his game. I guess that's something that could rear its head next season, depending on who United appoints and whether that person wants a goalkeeper who is more aggressive with their positioning than De Gea and, and more proactive with their feet than De Gea. He's had a patchy international career as well, hasn't yeah. he? He's, he's had a, quite a few mistakes at major tournaments. He, he he wasn't their starting goalkeeper at the Euros. That was Unai Simon, who I, I didn't find particularly convincing. And, and Simon is still the Spain number one, backed up by Robert Sanchez, um, as you said, from Brighton. And I forget his name, the, the Brentford goalkeeper, who's who's been called up now as well. But that's that, that must hurt De Gea. Um, you think of how strong Spain used to be in the goalkeeping department when they had Casillas, uh, Valdez. I wasn't a big fan of Pepe Reina myself, but he was, you know, he was a keeper of, you know, to have him as a number three keeper was pretty good going at major tournaments. And those three were keeping De Gea out on the sidelines for, um, for, for a couple of tournaments, I think. But, it must be because of the way Spain play, and and Simon is is a very proactive keeper with with his feet, uh, with his distribution. People don't regard De Gea as that kind of keeper anymore. It's, it's it's strange in that he's almost seen as this this antiquated goalie who belongs to a, a bygone era. Even though one of the reasons that United signed him was because of his distribution, but it was a different kind of distribution. It was essentially picking a player out with a a seventy or an eighty yard pass. I mean, Edison can can do that. Allison can do that, but they are also in in that team because they're proactive in coming off their line and and, and passing out to defenders, starting attacks as well. And that's one of the you know that's one of the flaws in De Gea's game. He doesn't do that enough. Um, you know, we saw it with Dean Henderson last season. He 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 almost committed. Well, he did commit a mistake against Burnley when I think he got beaten by, it might have been a Chris Wood header where he came off his line for a cross and I think he was on the edge of the area and there was an offside, so the goal was disallowed. But, I mean, from what, from what I was told was that he was he was doing that because he was conscious that De Gea has this reputation for not coming off his line. So he was doing the polar opposite to an extent that it was actually, you know, in, in that case, it was it was damaging for him when sometimes you want to keep your powder dry a bit. Um but it was still a, it's still a slight surprise to see De Gea out of the the Spain squad. I know Enrique has you know, has, has demoted him, and Enrique is certainly not averse to making tough decisions. He didn't pick a single Real Madrid player in their squad for the Euros last year. He's he's ended Sergio Ramos's international career. That ballsiness is another reason why he'd be such a really good fit at United. But unfortunately, I just don't see that happening because of the timing of the World Cup. It, it counts against United uh, where it, where it's starting in November in Qatar rather than in the summer. And as far as Sancho is concerned, that that was just perverse. It, I wasn't entirely surprised by it because he's, from what I've been told, he's not endeared himself to staff at the FA before. And I wrote a few things about it uh, last year about how he's 
his training performances were quite subdued and Southgate was quite critical of them, uh, which was why he wasn't getting much of a look in. And then when his transfer to United was all but finalised, they, they saw an upshot in his training performances. And uh, and I think he, he started against Ukraine in the course finals, didn't he? Um, but it, th- I mean, Southgate, every time a squad selection comes along, that quote from, I think it was 2017. So it's going back five years where he talks about, talked about picking players not on reputation but on form uh it always comes back to haunt him because he always makes an illogical selection and when he was saying about the players who've been ahead of Sancho this season I mean I don't I don't think Jack Grealish has had a better season than Sancho I think he's been very subdued Smith Rowe as you say was was doing well was having to progress a few months for Arsenal but he's he started one game in 2022 he's extremely lucky to be in that squad the other picks completely understandable that those players are ahead of Sancho um, as far as their form is concerned this season and probably in terms of the pecking order in the England setup as well but it is a very very strange decision still to have taken him out of the team he's been United's best player over the last six or seven weeks and on the on current form he is one of England's best attackers and it, it does feel remiss not to have picked him, whereas some players in that squad, Tyrone Mings as an example, I mean, I, I think everybody expected Mings to be picked because England have, have a dearth of quality England centre-backs and Southgate has this this leadership group and I think Mings is part of that. But Mings has had an abysmal season for Aston Villa and you sometimes wonder whether, I mean, Southgate has you know, gone, gone with an out-of-the-box pick with the lad from Crystal Palace coming in. And I think he probably should have done that a little bit more in terms of his centre-half selection because they are friendly matches after all. Mm-hmm. And he's got to look at the most talented up-and-coming ones because there are some in the England squad who it's almost as if they're there because they have a voice, uh, which yeah. is, you know, I might as well just say, I mean, I'm practically referring to Connor Cody. He is just a cheerleader, <laughs> really. I know he does all right for Wolves, but it, it's, it's because he's loud, really, that he gets in the England squad every time. Yeah, agreed on that. Um, right, I think we'll leave it there for today's podcast. Um, we'll be back at some point during the international break, I'm sure, hopefully with some news on a new manager or a potential new manager to report on. But for now, Samuel, thanks for your time. Thank you, Ty. Appreciate it. Uh, remember to give us a like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We're available on all uh, all decent platforms and some not-so-decent ones as well. And we'll be back with you soon. <laughs>